Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Judd Brewer is a neuroscientist, addiction psychiatrist, and worldwide known expert in mindfulness training for habit change, treating addiction, and unwanted behaviors. So when we think about changing bad habits or creating good habits, you're going to love this podcast. Judd, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So when I first stumbled upon you on, on our dear friend Rich Roll's podcast, I saw, wow, this guy's super interesting, and he's got a really cool gig at the university level. Because when I went to college, there was no university mindfulness center, and you're at the Brown University Mindfulness Center. So for, let's just talk about that for a second. What is it and what you do there? I'm the director of research and innovation there, so I focus on the research efforts, but we also do um, worldwide programs, teacher training, things like that. And there's also a contemplative studies concentration at Brown uh, started by Professor Hal Roth, um, where undergraduates can actually focus on contemplative studies as their quote unquote major, their concentration. It's pretty cool. It is cool. So how did you get into mindfulness in the first place and specifically also you built a name for yourself and your work on addiction and habit building so how did this all start i was totally serendipitous i started medical school i had uh, just gone through a relationship breakup right before starting medical school and was having trouble sleeping i started meditating my first day of medical school Uh, yeah i said you know new start new thing let's try this too and just started meditating, started, I'd meditate during boring medical school lectures. (laughs) Was it sleeping or was it meditating? (laughs) It helped me not sleep. I think I did a lot of meditating too in college. (laughs) That's how we define it. Yeah, I figured I could, you know, I could learn to pay attention to my breath and develop concentration practices when the lectures weren't particularly interesting. So you were self-taught. Well, I started, I read books, listened to cassette tapes. Uh, I love it. You're my age. Yeah, cassette cassette tapes. tapes. (laughs) (laughs) And then joined a weekly meditation group. I was at um, Washington University in St. Louis for medical school. So in St. Louis, found a Sunday night meditation group and then started going on weekend retreats, week-long retreats, found a dedicated teacher and just went whole hog, you know, go big or go home. (laughs) (laughs) So which type of meditation specifically? I started in the Theravadan tradition. So it's, um, there are a number of different, you know, there's like Zen and there's Tibetan um, Buddhism and there's this Theravadan uh, that's mostly out of Southeast Asia. What is, I, I haven't heard of that one. Usually I tend to think of Vipassana. And- so Vipassana is within Theravada. Uh, Got it. If you think of it that way, yeah. So Vipassana literally just means seeing clearly. So like uh, S.N. Goenka is probably one of the most famous Vipassana teachers. Um, but some describe uh, insight meditation, other types of things. Those generally fall within the category of Theravada and Buddhism. Got it. So you're in med school, you're studying, and then personally you've, you've taken up meditation or a mindfulness practice, if you will. How did those two worlds collide? It, it's a great question. I think you know the, that particular lineage 
it lends itself to be very kind of scientific. And so it's, you know, it's about analyzing, understanding the mind, figuring out what's happening. And in medical school, that's why I went to medical school. I was fascinated, like, how's this thing, body, you know, mind work? And so the two actually dovetailed really nicely as I started to learn all the physiology and all of my medical school studies. I started to learn how my mind worked uh, through meditation because that wasn't something you know, we'd learned some basic physiology and how the brain works and neural synapses and things like that. But we didn't really learn anything about, you know, how our minds work and how to work with our minds. And that ended up being tremendously important for me and also guided how I ended up um, doing my career in you know, mindfulness research. You know, I was uh, my Ph.D. was in immunology and I was studying, you know, why we get sick when we uh, when we're stressed i thought that was a really fascinating question why do we get sick when we get stressed <laughs> well well the one line answer is that our brain and our mind are not separated from our body as much as we'd like to think you know we walk around this disembodied thing uh, we you know our brains and our bodies are very connected and so when we get stressed out it affects our physiologic systems and can put a lot of stress on the immune system literally put stress on the immune system so that's what I studied. I did mouse models where we were looking to see, you know, specific genes and specific cells and things like that. And from there, you know, just learning a bunch about these basic processes. But I also started to ask, well, how does this actually apply to humans? You know, there was this so what question, you know, like we can learn a bunch of things physiologically. But as a physician, I really wanted to see how I could merge this with all the suffering that I was seeing in the world. So literally, I think when someone's stressed, like the worst thing you can say to them is don't get stressed. <laughs> That's right. So relax. It, 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 exactly. Like why don't stress about it? It's like, oh, so what do you say to someone listening? You know, I, th I think I think, you know, in this scary age we live in coronavirus and just the flu and whatever have you, people are thinking about immunity. What advice do you have for someone listening who's looking to strengthen their immunity from a mind-body perspective what i would say is start by understanding how your mind works and if you can understand how your mind works you can then start to work with your mind so how does our mind work <laughs> how is that that sounds like a a complicated messy process do i have to go to therapy to to understand how my mind works how, how do we begin that process you don't have to go to therapy i think a lot of how our mind works is can be distilled down into some very basic survival mechanisms. So I think that maybe we could even start there. That might explain a lot about how our mind works and might save you a lot of therapy. <laughs> I'm in anything to save, save dollars on therapy. <laughs> so I, I study particularly how habits form and how we can change those. And it turns out, well, I think it's helpful to just kind of understand like, why we form habits. So think about it this way. If you woke up in the morning, so if you woke up this morning and you had to relearn everything from walking to putting on your clothes to talking to cooking your food to eating, all that stuff, you'd be exhausted by breakfast, right? So we have to learn habits so that we can learn things and set them down as habits so we don't have to remember those and we can actually learn new things. It frees up our brain to learn new things. So Habit formation is a good thing. The, the only problem is that when that gets hijacked, 
then it becomes problematic and, and we get stressed out. So for example, we get anxious and things like that. This was actually set up as a very, very basic survival mechanism. And the simplest elements are, there are three elements, like a trigger, a behavior, and a reward or, or a result. And the way you can think of this is as a way to survive, we see some food, that's the trigger, we eat the food, that's the behavior, and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. So that that's described as reward-based learning or reinforcement learning and is the oldest known learning process in all of science. Actually, Eric Kandel got the Nobel Prize in 2000 showing that it's evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. So that basic learning process explains probably 95 plus percent of our behavior on a daily basis. So if we start there, you're, you're 95 percent toward, you know, the way toward learning everything about your mind. So with regards to habits, one, how do we break a bad habit? And then two, how do we create a healthy habit? Great questions. <laughs> so understanding that process is the first place to start. And breaking bad habits depends on, there's a little bit of neuroscience that actually helps us really understand this whole process. So this is all, um, it's, it's based on reward processes. So reward-based learning, right? How rewarding a behavior is determines how likely we are to repeat it in the future. So if we eat the food, so let's say you eat some broccoli versus you eat some chocolate cake, okay? From a survival standpoint, your brain is going to compare those two and it's going to say which one has more fat and sugar because it wants the calories, right? So broccoli, <laughs> not, not quite so good in the calorie category, cake, boom. So our brain says, okay, I'm going to prefer cake over broccoli. And when given the choice, we're going to eat cake, which is why uh, you, you have a, a young child, right? You probably don't serve dessert at the same time as you serve dinner because the survival mechanisms will kick in and say dessert, 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 Doesn't dessert. Doesn't work well with a three-year-old. <laughs> yes. So that, that uh, you can think of that as a reward hierarchy. That value gets set up, and our brain sets up this huge hierarchy of all these different behaviors. So when given a choice between two behaviors, it's going to pick you know, X versus Y. Now, there's another piece that actually um, plays a big role in this. It's not just things like calories. It's all the things associated with the behavior. So, for example, um, let's say eating cake. If you, when do we typically learn to eat cake? We go to birthday parties when we're kids, right? And so there's cake, there's ice cream, there's friends, there's presents. It's a lot of fun all packed into one. And every time you go to a birthday party, your brain lays down this reward value that says, oh, that's really good. Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's really good. So by the time we're middle-aged, our brain looks at, you know, we look at a piece of cake and we don't have to go, hmm, should I eat that? Our brain says, dude, what are you waiting for? Just eat it. So we've laid down this uh, behavioral pattern, this habit that says, I know how rewarding this is. Don't think about it. Just do it. I think of this as set and forget. So set the reward value and forget about the details. So if our brain is a reward-based system, how do we compete with that when there are so many great foods like chocolate cake and cookies and cupcakes and it's not a party and there are options everywhere? You know, I'm traveling, you travel today, you flew in the airport, I've got the treats and I've got the healthy stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
how do we compete with that? How do we start to rewire our brain to get excited about broccoli? So what's the typical thing that you've heard about when somebody's trying to change a habit? Let's say not eating cake. What's the number one thing that people go to? They go to cookies. <laughs> you can't eat cake. I'm going to go to cookies. Right. And then I'll go to a gluten-free cookie or a vegan cookie or a keto gluten-free <laughs> vegan cookie. I'll pretend it's a lot better for me. Right. Right. All of that. And we try to force ourselves not to do the thing that we, quote unquote, say is bad for us. Right. So we willpower. Say, there it is. Yeah. So just use your willpower, you know, and, and grit and, and just stop eating cake. So, so what are we going to do? think our way out of eating, right? Because that's what willpower is, is based on. It's like, well, I see that this is bad for me. I'm just going to not do it. That's actually what I learned in medical school was if you want to lose weight, there's this formula. Make sure you have more calories out than calories in. The formula is accurate. It's just that that's not how my clinic patients work. Right. You know, they, can, they know that they shouldn't eat X number of calories. It's just that they don't have control over it. And the uh, the willpower piece of our pieces of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, that's the weakest part of our brain. It's the youngest from an evolutionary perspective. It's the first that goes offline when we get stressed and when we get hungry. So it's a it's kind of a failing proposition to start there. So if if we can't trust that, what we can trust is you know these old, very strong learning processes. Why not start there? So you're talking about you know, this reward system, how do we get ourselves to eat X, Y, or Z? This isn't about demonizing or telling ourselves not to eat cake. It's about one simple ingredient. It's about paying attention. So as we start to pay attention, when we're eating a certain food, for example, like the amount or the type of food, we can really see how rewarding it is now as compared to when we were five. This is where the mindfulness comes in. This is where the mindfulness comes in. Yes. <laughs> so the, I'll, I'll just tell you what I do and tell me if, if what I'm doing makes sense or is sort of what you're getting at. So on one hand, I am a big believer in willpower. I think that's just how I was trained as an athlete. It's like you just go even though I haven't competed for 20 years, but I'm just, you know, you, you go do it. Um and the way I, you know, we'll stick to the chocolate cake. So what I what I've come to the conclusion that works for me is when I think of chocolate cake is I think about it as a an indulgence. And if I'm going to have a piece of chocolate cake, I want it to be amazing. Mm -hmm. And I try to really enjoy the cake and try to eat slow and just like savor it and say like be, be mindful about mindful about eating the cake mm -hmm. versus just be like, wow, this cake was awesome. If, we're gonna have, if I'm going to have cake, it's going to be an awesome cake versus there's just cake out there. You know, I'm just going to grab it and eat it really quick and so forth. And, and to me, it's the difference. What I would say is mindless mm -hmm. versus being mindful. Yeah. And also something I heard once, which to me made sense. I'm curious what your perspective is. When, when you're on a, a, a diet or a workout regime or whatever you subscribe to with regards to nutrition, whatever you want to call it, some people will say is a cheat day or I'm cheating. I like treat. Mm. Yeah. Cheat to me feels a little bit shameful, whereas treat is I'm going to enjoy it. It's an indulgence. What What's your take on 
reframing that that internal dialogue with regards to sugar laden goods <laughs> well it reminds me of a uh, in medical school my first year of medical school we had this anatomy class where the professor invited this Mr. Natural Universe who happened to own the gym that she went to. So she invited him in to show us muscle groups, which was really cool. And when he finished his lecture, I went up to him afterwards because I was really interested in like, okay, what do you eat? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and he said, you know, back then it was, you know, 10% low-fat diet, you know, you know, this, that, lots of vegetables, blah, 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 blah. And he said, I eat that six days a week. And I said, what do you do on the seventh day? And he gives me this big grin and he says, I rest. (laughs) 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 And his resting was like two dozen donuts, a bunch of fried chicken, like everything that he, you know, he was restraining himself from eating previously the rest of the week. And he said that would, I don't know if it made him sick enough or it made his guts, you know, you can only imagine what happens on a day like that. That was enough to get him to stay on his diet, stay on diet, say, for six days of the week. And that worked for him. So in some cases, this can work where, you know, it's like we just six days a week are really solid. And then the seventh day we go crazy. For many people, this and and a lot of my the folks in our programs describe this as um, food rules and food jail. (laughs) so if they set these food rules like this guy had done for as long as they can and then when they break when they deviate they put themselves in food jail and beat themselves up for not being strong enough not having enough willpower so willpower can certainly be helpful you know certainly worked for mr spock you know like (laughs) (laughs) yet for many many of us um, it's it's that that willpower muscle is just not well developed enough, and that's where it's really helpful to really understand how the mind works, and then do things like you're already describing, which is you know if we're going to eat cake, pay attention when we eat the cake. And I'll give you an example. One of my friends, uh, Dana Small, she's a food researcher at Yale. For her PhD thesis, she had people eat chocolate. She gave them their favorite type of chocolate. And she had them eat it while she was scanning their brains in a PET scanner so she could measure their brain activity. And she would ask them a simple question like, how good is this? You know, how much do you like this? And of course, first bite, <laughs> it's their favorite chocolate. They're sure. like, you know, rate it 10 out of 10. This is awesome. And she kept feeding them and feeding them and feeding them. And you, eventually they're like, what did I get myself into? Because <laughs> by the end of the experiment, they're at negative 10 out of 10 saying, this is awful, terrible. How much chocolate was she here. giving them? I, I don't remember the exact details, but what she could actually, what she could this see. Like Willy Wonka? Yeah. It was this inflection point where it's like too much of a good thing right. is awful. So you're not describing pigging out on chocolate. You're describing taking a piece of cake, totally savoring it, enjoying it, and being satisfied with that. That's what mindfulness is all about. Is that the, the practical real world advice you have for anyone listening who's just looking to you know eat a little healthier every day and not be tempted around three o'clock when that sugar rush comes or caffeine kick or what have you what what no we we take a somewhat unorthodox approach and that approach this is based on probably 20 years of research now where we were were really just looking to understand like how do these habits form right so this reward-based learning piece is the strongest Uh, part check. The next part is this reward value piece. And then the third part is how do we actually hack that reward system? 
So I think of this as a three-step process. The first step is being being able to map out what those habit loops are around eating. So, you know, if, if I'm stressed, do I go to cake to make myself feel better? Well, that might distract me for a little bit or give me a sugar rush, but that's not actually going to fix the root cause of my stress. So just being able to map out those habit loops is the first step. And we've actually incorporated these into app-based mindfulness training programs that we can study and test. So we have this app called Eat Right Now that we've just finished, literally just finished a study on where we've incorporated this craving tool right into the app. And we can have people, when they have an urge to eat, we have them click on that tool and we have them imagine eating that, let's say, cake. So they can pick the type or the amount of food. So let's say it's the type of food, cake. And they imagine eating the cake. And then we ask them, how much are you craving for this right now? <laughs> and that helps them determine how, what the reward value is. And this, this is a critical step for this. If they're craving more, then we say, okay, go ahead and eat. It means the reward value is still really high. And then we have them eat mindfully, just like you did. So is there a window of time where, okay, I'm craving cake right now. And if, if I'm able to use a, use a mindfulness, mindfulness-based approach, if I can just get through the next five minutes or 30 seconds without seeing cake, am I going to be okay? Does that, is there a window? Because you start to do the practice like, okay, I really want cake. If it's like right here in front of me, oh man, that's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. But if I have to actually go somewhere and get it, is there in the process have you found there's a sweet spot with regards to time? Like we just have to get through a window yeah. and you're going to be okay? It's no, unfortunately. <laughs> so whether this is food or any of my addiction psychiatry patients, those cravings, they, they might be able to ride one out. I had somebody time one, 13 minutes. So she timed it. Her craving lasted 13 minutes. Wow. Typically they last a little bit shorter than that. But what she was highlighting is they can last a while, they can feel unbearable, and then they come back. So if we haven't indulged the craving and we haven't learned how to work with it, they're just going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. So embrace it and don't try to get your mind off of it. Some people will say, you know, go for a run, do this, do that, but it's going to come back. You need to embrace it. You can't run forever. Right. <laughs> and you're gonna, it's like you're running from the craving. Right. So it certainly is, exercise is good and all those things, but this is about embracing it. And really, I think of it as rubbing our faces in it. So if you're going to eat the cake, eat the cake and pay attention. And two things people notice. One is if they eat and they really savor it, um, we, we have them ask this question, how little is enough? So they can actually ask, okay, this bite, am I going over the edge where it's becoming less uh, pleasurable? where they're going over and they can literally, it's much easier for them to stop. If they can't stop, we say, go, okay, go for it, but pay attention afterwards to so that they can update that reward value in their brain. And we found that it takes as few as 10 times of people going through this process where they actually update that reward value. Well, we all have that personal story, whether it's the pint of ice cream or the bag of chips where you just can't have one. And literally there, there's a very successful ice cream brand Arctic Zero, which built the brand with the understanding of there are less calories in it, but you can eat the whole pint. Yes. So, and, and, <laughs> so they can sell more pints. <laughs> well, it, it, it's like it's, they, they essentially hit people with, it. I don't know how, what, how many people have this problem, but you know, I've certainly done that where you, you open the pint and it's like, oh, well, one, two, oh, I'm just going to finish it. Yeah. So the approach that some people take is, well, I just don't, 
I won't have it in the house. If I know I can't do it, which is which is part of it, and we can segue to addiction, where mm-hmm. if you're an alcoholic, you probably shouldn't have alcohol around the house put, or put yourself or whatever you're addicted to. One thing I've, I've heard is just don't put yourself in a compromising situation. Mm-hmm. So what, what's your take on just removing the obstacle, if you will, versus embracing it and the fine line between hardcore addiction and what I would call addiction creep? Yes. Yeah. So let's start with the, the avoidance piece, right? Yes. So just don't have it in the house. Whether it's people in our Eat Right Now program or even my patients, you know, my, my addiction clinic patients, you know, they can say, okay, I'm not going to the liquor store. I'm not going to the store to buy ice cream. And then, you know, they're at a party or they're at an event where there's ice cream or alcohol or whatever, and they haven't learned how to work with it. So they can either sequester themselves and not be around people where they might be put into a situation where they might be tempted which is actually problematic for for general well-being. You know, we're social creatures, and especially for addiction, communities and community support's been shown to be really, really essential for that. So certainly we can say, I'm not going to the grocery store. A lot of people really struggle with that. We're looking for the struggle-free solution. And so if we can really understand how our minds work and work with them, that actually becomes a struggle-free solution because we become disenchanted with the old behaviors and we actually become enchanted. You were asking about how do we start new habits? We become enchanted with the new ones because they just feel better. It, cake is an example. When people really pay attention and they, when they eat cake, they realize, oh, I don't have to eat as much as I habitually do. And I feel better when I eat less. Like I can stop when I'm satisfied. And that contentment helps them stop and not overindulge, which is where the problems tend to come in. And that's actually, we, we can talk about addiction here. I like the simple definition I learned in, in my residency training, which is continued use despite adverse consequences. <laughs> so you can think of cake, right? There's nothing wrong with cake. We're not demonizing cake here. But if we eat three pieces of cake every single day, that can become problematic. With addiction, you know, we'll start with alcohol. So if I'm, if I'm an alcoholic, I can't drink, can't do it. Why do you think AA works so well for so many people? What is it about the 12 steps from a science perspective, from your perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. Actually, AA has not lent itself to being studied. Uh, so there's a guy, John Kelly at Harvard, who's probably one of the world's foremost experts on studying 12 steps programs. It's actually not easy to study these programs. One of the reasons is there are a bunch of, you know, there are 12 steps, there are a bunch of components, and it's hard to disentangle the active ingredients. So for example, we just talked about this community, right? Mm-hmm. Community is really critical. Um, helping people hold themselves accountable, getting a sponsor, and even going through the different steps. Um, a lot of these re- can be really helpful, and they might even be synergistic as as people go through the program. So I don't know the scientific basis behind it because I don't think there's a everything is known about twelve step programs. One of the things that is known is that they they tend to work. Um, but the problem is we don't know. You know, it's it's hard to disentangle something that's you know it's like this whole whole approach. How much I'm curious from an outsider looking in. I always thought. The, the notion, the concept of, of letting go, surrendering, mm-hmm. is just a big one. What's your take from your perspective on letting go and saying this is, this is 
there's something greater than me. This is above me. And this idea of surrender and what's going on in the brain. So the letting go, I do know a little bit about because that has a very nice link with mindfulness training. So if you think of getting caught up in a craving, uh, there's a brain region or a brain network called the default mode network that gets activated. And it actually gets activated not just with getting caught up in a craving. So think of it like holding on, like, I want that cigarette. I want the ice cream. I want whatever. That activates the, uh, the default mode network. It also gets activated when we're anxious, when we get caught up in anxiety, when we, get, we start ruminating, when we're depressed. Um, all sorts of you know, negative, positive, even positive emotions can get us kind of caught up in this. And when we did our first study with experienced meditators back in 2011. We published that first uh, report. And we were looking at, at experienced meditators because we wanted to see, you know, these folks seem to know their minds and seem to have some, I don't know if the best word is to say, have some control over their minds. They weren't caught up as much. And mindfulness training is, is specifically geared toward helping people not get caught up, whether it's getting caught up in worry or, or getting caught up in regret or you know, future, past, all this stuff. It's really about helping people let go and stay in the present moment. We found that mindfulness training specifically deactivates this default mode network of brain regions. So while, while these regions get activated with cravings, while they get activated with rumination and anxiety, they get deactivated with mindfulness. In fact, we just did a study in my lab where we looked at people who are trying to quit smoking and we could show them smoking cues and scan their brains at baseline and see how much this network got activated. Then we could uh, randomize them to get our app-based mindfulness training program called Craving to Quit or the National Cancer Institute's um, app. And then a month later, we could scan their brains again and see which one, which group did better. We found that mindfulness training specifically targets this default mode network. So the more people practice mindfulness training, the more their default mode network got deactivated and the more that correlated with reductions in cigarette smoking. So it was, it's pretty nice to see where we can actually line you know, the, the theory up of letting go, right, which is right. what mindfulness is about, with the brain regions involved in letting go with clinical outcomes like smoking. Can you talk a little bit more about smoking and what that looked like? I thought it was super interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk all day about this. No, but like what, what the, the experience was. I think, look, it's 2020. It's mind-blowing that people smoke, but people smoke. It is. And you ask them to, you know, why don't you quit? Well, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. But your approach is very fascinating. Yeah. So one piece to note here is the average age that people tend to start smoking is 13. So they start to smoke. And this is what we're seeing with vaping as well, the, the coming epidemic. Um, at 13, we're smoking to be cool at school or rebel against our parents or whatever. And so all that reward value gets locked in with smoking. So, for example, I had a patient who wanted, came to me wanted to quit smoking. He'd been smoking 40 years. Oh. So he reinforced this habit loop 293,000 times. Wow. 293,000 times. So just stop. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. That's, you know, forget about it. It just doesn't Where You can't just tell yourself to stop after your brain has grooved this and has been neurobiologically reinforced through the nicotine 293,000 times. Instead, we have to hack that system itself. So we had him start paying attention. We, and we have all of our smokers do this. Just pay attention as you smoke. And what they realize 
is the smoking taste like crap? It really doesn't taste very good. None of my patients have come in and said, wow, thank you so much. I didn't realize how great cigarettes taste. <laughs> so what that does is it, it updates the reward value from when they were 13, when they first started smoking, to now, when they're smoking right in this moment. And they realize, wow, this just doesn't taste very good. So they start to become disenchanted. So I mentioned these three steps. Step one is mapping out these habits so they can just understand how their minds work. Step two is becoming disenchanted with the old behavior. So with smoking, it's a, it's a pretty simple example. We have people pay attention when they smoke. That's step two. We don't say just try to stop smoking, try to do this, try to avoid, try to distract yourself. We say just smoke, but pay attention. Just like when you eat the cake. And they realize, oh, wow. I, you know, I say, I can't believe I didn't notice this before. So what's your take on hypnosis? Uh, there's really no scientific basis for it. I've, ha I've had patients come to me who've been hypnotized. They've been, I think the longest I've heard is somebody was, was able to stay quit for two years and then something wow. happened and they started smoking again. Does hypnosis work for anything? I don't, there's not a lot of science. Yeah. There's a guy at Stanford studying it and looking at some of the brain networks behind it. And so I don't want to categorically dismiss it, but I, it. I don't think there's anything strong for smoking, unfortunately. So with regards to meditation and mindfulness in the eyes of science, are all forms created equal or is it mindfulness is at the top of the list and TM is in the middle or I'm just curious, <laughs> like, is there, is there a ranking when it comes to habits and breaking addiction? I look at it as humans are pretty individual and they're even just looking at the three main schools of Buddhist meditation and then there are a gazillion others uh, and many other contemplative practices in all religions have these, you know, a very deep uh, contemplative element to them that often isn't talked about as an, on the surface level. I think of it as f having, finding the right match for someone so, for example, I was a good match in just using uh, Theravada as an example. I was a great, good match for that because that was like kind of scientifically based. Um, Zen tends to, you know, say, stop talking so much, <laughs> just sit. <laughs> and some people really gravitate to that. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism has other, you know, other things that, that people gravitate toward. That's just an example in those. Um, there, you know, there are contemplative practices in Judaism, in Christianity, in Islam, all of these um, and so finding what works for somebody is really the key piece. What I see from all, and I'm not a religious scholar, but what I've seen in all of these contemplative traditions is that they share a core element, which goes back to something that you talked about, which is letting go. They might use different language, but all of these are training ourselves to literally get out and get out of our own way or not get caught up in, you know, in, in ourselves, you know, in, in, Think of it as you know, some describe it as as dissolving the small self, you know, so that that God can flow through us and those types of things. But all of these are are about helping to let go of holding on to things or taking things personally as a way to think of it. So we'll go back to alcohol for a second. Mm -hmm. You've got people who drink way too much, alcoholics. You have people who don't drink at all, and then you have the majority of the population, which we call the messy middle i heard that phrase once i love it which which is yeah. most people and they're in the middle some you know they're trying to figure out you know what maybe they drink a little too much maybe not so much and they're just trying to like balance it what advice do you have to the messy middle with regards to 
trying to figure out what's best <laughs> and what works in terms yeah. of you know frequency um and and just balance it so here i would stay away from rules because when we set rules they're just we're just more likely to fail at them right this is where willpower comes in if i just obey my rules whatever the rules are or whatever rules somebody tells me are then i'm you know i'm more likely to set myself spoken up spoken like a brown professor <laughs> no curriculum no rules i went to the wrong school but it's helpful to pay attention and so if somebody in the messy middle is trying to determine you know what the right amount of alcohol is for them you know i can't give them a prescription and say oh just drink one drink or whatever um, certainly there's a lot of data suggesting where it becomes problematic from health perspective but what i would say is pay attention and just like just like that chocolate experiment you know what is it like to have half a drink what is it like to have one drink what's it like to have one and a half drinks where does the pleasure start to diminish and the habits start to kick in you know I, I, somebody was just talking to me where um i think it was a therapist was saying you know, she was employing some of these techniques and she had one of her patients, you know, go home and, and drink a beer. And he realized after half a beer that it no longer, you know, he's, he was done with the taste. So half a beer in and he's like, wow, I never noticed this before. So that's where I would have folks start is pay attention, see where it starts to diminish, but also look at the results, right? What happens with one versus two versus three versus five drinks? I'm guessing the results are going to be different in terms of how you feel afterwards, um, the types of behaviors or the things you say during and all of those things. All of that adds up in terms of affecting our well-being. You know, one drink might be enough to get the joy and the pleasure and if somebody likes to drink wine and have the taste or the beer or whatever. But beyond that, you know, they can start to see where is it that I start to just feel out of control or start to feel, you know, not so good in the morning. Diminished returns. Yes. <laughs> That's how our brains work. That's how they work. Something I mentioned earlier is this this concept of addiction creep. And what I mean by that is, okay, we tend to think of addiction, alcohol, drugs, so food, sort of the harder core addictions, if you will. What I think is there are everyday addictions that are a little more subtle, whether it's checking email, whether it's social media, work, shopping, I could go on and on, but it's it, they're not overt. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of like an addiction creep, I think, happening in all of us or most people. Uh, what's your take on addiction creep and how do we how do we manage that? Some people will talk about retail therapy, for example. Right. <laughs> I, I like to go back to that simple definition of addiction because I think that helps simplify things. And I think we can make our lives and we can make concepts very complex when they don't need to be. So if you think of the definition of continued use despite adverse consequences, we can look, let's use shopping as an example. We can look at our life and ask, when is this necessary? You know, when are my clothes falling apart? When am I getting holes in my shoes? Okay, I need to go shopping. Versus when am I doing this because I'm stressed or I want to avoid something else? The shopping is not going to fix whatever it, that root cause of the stress was. And it might lighten our wallet to the point where it's causing more stress. So continued use despite adverse consequences helps us really see whether it's a behavior or a substance where we're starting to cross that line. So why do you think you hear stories of people who you know, are extraordinarily well off but extraordinarily unhappy? I know it's hard to generalize, but what's your take on, on that? 
You want me to generalize? Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. There's a, you know, this reminds me of this ancient uh, image. It's called this hungry ghost. Have you ever heard of this, the hungry ghost? No. So imagine this ghost that has a long, thin esophagus, very narrow esophagus that's very long, and then this huge belly. So no matter how much it eats, it can't get enough food down the esophagus fast enough to fill the belly because that food's going to get digested and move on. So it's this, it's this hungry ghost phenomenon. You know, how much is enough? How much is enough? Oh, you know, I, I think uh, John D. Rockefeller was quoted, you know, this very rich, wealthy person as, you know, like, when is, how much is enough? And I think he said something like, just a little bit more. <laughs> So that's this hungry ghost that we all have, whether, you know, regardless of our material wealth, if we don't understand what actually brings us lasting happiness, we're going to go chasing after it our entire lives, ironically making ourselves suffer in the process. So I started with an extreme example because where I'm headed is social media. Hmm. And my theory is with social media, we end up, comparing ourselves to everyone and the image we present on social media is not necessarily the image of reality mm -hmm. and it's a you know potentially dangerous what what's your take on social media and i think about reward my head what you talk about reward reward system if i post a great photo on instagram and i see the the likes and the comments reward reward so yeah. use social media as, a, as an example yeah, I read a whole chapter about this in my in my book, The Craving Mind, you know, because there's social media really deserves a lot of unpacking. But let's keep it really simple here. I think of social media as a perfect storm. So there are a number of things that social media has that other that we never had before. So one is this this instant comparison where we can compare ourselves to millions of other people if we really wanted to, literally. Like, <laughs> you know, that's how Facebook got started, yep. you know, was this comparison thing, you know, who's, who's cute, basically. So we have that. It, it, Facebook is interesting because it didn't, it didn't really take off like a rocket ship until there was a particular feature that was introduced. And you can probably guess which one that was. Like. The like. Yes. So there are these pieces that can actually jack, jack our dopamine system. And there have been studies now published on this where, you know, there's a study on Instagram where they uh, showed adolescents, this is at UCLA, where they showed adolescents uh, their own Instagram feeds and they just manipulated how many likes each picture got. And the more likes, of course, jack this dopamine system and also jack this self-referential uh, system that we were talking about earlier, the, the default mode network. And so there's something rewarding about like, oh, I got a bunch of likes. And we can actually feel that. There's this excited quality to it. So there's that piece. And then you never know when you're going to get that next like, which is described as intermittent reinforcement. That's how the casinos make all their money on the slot machines. You never know when you're going to win, but you win just enough to keep coming back more, <laughs> to spend all your money. So we have all of this. And we, it's basically like we have this slot machine in our pocket now with the advent of smartphones. So that piece has just <laughs> taken this whole thing to the next level. Facebook couldn't be nearly, they might argue with this, but without smartphones, social media would never have blown up as much as it has. Because now, you know, we can't go 30 seconds and sit at a, at a red light in, you know, in, in traffic without like having this thing burn a hole in our pocket and say, check to see if you got, <laughs> if you got something on your feed or your Twitter feed or your Facebook feed or Instagram or whatever.
So what do we do? How do we manage that? It's something I think a lot about. I think about our, you know, we have two young daughters. I think about well, what it's, what's going to be like for them. Like, how do we, how do we compete? How do we manage it? Yeah. Well, it goes back to understanding how our minds work. And a lot of this has to do with anxiety, for example, where we get anxious when we think, oh, that person looks better than I do, or they're having the perfect life and I'm not. You know, this goes back to what you were talking about, where, you know, we can project some image of ourselves up on social media, which isn't who we are. So we feel like we have to somehow maintain that, which we can't because it's not real. And then everybody else looks at that and says, wow, they're meeting a standard that is impossible for me. And then they get anxious. So you combine that with uncertainty and all these other things. Our, our brains really don't like uncertainty. Our brains are set up to try to predict the future. So if we can't predict when we're going to get the next like, our brain starts worrying. Oh, why aren't people going to like my post? What did I do wrong? This and that. So we, you know, if, we, if we understand how our minds work, we can then start to work with everything from social media to even the anxiety that's driven by social media. We actually just finished a... A randomized controlled trial in my lab where we, we have an uh, anxiety app called Unwinding Anxiety, we got a 63% reduction in anxiety scores in people with generalized anxiety disorder. So this is like the, the worst of the worst where people are really struggling and simply training them to know how their minds work so that they can work with their minds, they get this huge reduction within two months. So two questions. One is what do you think is contributing to generation anxiety where it seems so many people are struggling with with anxiety these days mm -hmm. and then to maybe walk us through that practice and what, what what are some practical tips for someone suffering that can start to work understood everyone is unique and sure. nothing happens overnight but sure the so I mean the uncertainty piece so there's one there's this instant availability of information which we never had before so we can be checking the news all the time. We can be checking news feeds, quote unquote news feeds, because there's a lot of misinformation that gets disseminated. But that's the stuff that's really sticky and hot and anxiety provoking. Oh, my God, this just happened. And we just, you know, assume that it's true because it showed up on social media. <laughs> Tremendously dangerous. But our brains get hijacked that way. They, they go offline. They can't think all this stuff. So there's. There's the immediate availability of information. There's all this stuff around fear of missing out, right? FOMO, where it's like, oh, everybody else is having a good time. I'm not. So there's, and then there's the social comparison piece. There's the, um, you know, the thought machine in our pocket. All of that stuff is just totally jacking things. The good news is. So it's a smartphone. It, the smartphone is, is, a huge is, contributor. is a huge contributor here. Yet, you know, we could say, oh, I'm just going to take a smartphone hiatus. I recently heard this term that is hilarious, a dopamine fast. Dopamine which, fast. Which, We've which, talked about that. It's oh, a big thing in Silicon Valley. I know. If only it were true <laughs> or achievable. Um, oh, really? It, oh, yeah. That's, that's just a You can't fast from dopamine. Dopamine's how you learn. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> we could spend an hour talking about that. But the, the one liner on that is that's just an example of where people don't understand how their minds work. And so they're like, oh, I'm just going to stop doing if this is bad, I'm going to stop doing it. Back to the willpower <laughs> thing. <laughs> so they socially isolate themselves, they do all these things that are not good for them. <laughs> and then like, well, I'll go back to you go back to my dopamine for x number of days a week. Hmm, sounds a lot like a diet for your brain. Right. So yo-yo dieting, right? You, I'm sure dopamine. It's like I'll go on a 14-day Vipassana and then call it a day and then come back and yeah. back at it. Right, right. So if we can actually know how our minds work, then we, can, we don't have to go on a, dop a proverbial dopamine fast. We can actually 
moderate and actually work with our dopamine so it can help us learn, which is what it's set up to do, instead of trying to fight against it. So let's use anxiety as an example. In our Unwinding Anxiety program, we start by having people just map out their worry habit loops. That's a huge one for people, whether it's trying to complete their to-do list or, or whatever, or just you know planning something and then they end up over-planning and over-planning. They map it out. They see what they're actually getting. Like when I plan 17 times versus two, so for example, I flew here this morning. If I had planned that trip 17 times, I would have wasted a huge amount of time and probably gotten worried, you know, oh, maybe, maybe there's going to be bad weather. Maybe the Uber's going to go on strike, you know, all these things. If I plan it twice, make sure I haven't missed anything, I'm good. And I can stop there and I can notice when my brain starts to spin out of control and say, oh, what about, what about this? What about this? And I can say, <laughs> oh, that's just my brain doing its thing. Hmm. And I can see it's not rewarding to worry seven, you know, about and overplan this thing 17 times. So the reward value drops. It goes back to that's where, where how I can hack my mind. The next step is, is to bring in the BBO, the bigger, better offer. So our brains aren't just going to, they're not just going to say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. It's going to say, okay, show me something better, right? So for me, uh, what would an example be? Milk chocolate versus dark chocolate. Dark chocolate is the BBO for me. It just tastes better. I don't get a sugar rush from it, you know. I and I can stop after a couple of couple of you know cubes. Or what's your percentage? I'm, How dark do you go? Well, it depends on the type of chocolate. <laughs> I, I just found one that's a hundred percent that has almonds and sea salt. Ooh, hundred percent. Yeah, usually that's just too much, that's, and it tastes like chalk and and really yeah. bitter. But there was one I found it at Trader Joe's, I think of Montezuma's or something that I really enjoyed. But there, eighty-five percent is my go-to, where you can generally find a lot of brands that have really good mouthfeel, good taste, um, and there's some that aren't super expensive. So I'm a big fan of anything above 70%, but 85 is really my go-to, and occasionally I'll find 100% that's pretty good. Um, so think of that as my BBO hierarchy. My brain's got it all locked in. It just says, okay, tell me the brand, tell me the percentage, is there sea salt, all this stuff. That's what we can do for our brains. And so one of the, I think of this, there's a bigger, better offer that's actually always available. It doesn't cost anything. And it's something we can just wake up in our own selves, which is curiosity. I think of curiosity as a superpower. So for example, in our anxiety program, we train people to bring curiosity to the thought loops, to the habit loops, and also to the body sensations of anxiety. And as they get curious about it, they realize, oh, these are just physical sensations, and I don't have to resist them. I don't have to get caught up in them. It's mindfulness 101. It's, it's slowing, the, slowing the thoughts down, yes. recognizing the thoughts, yes. what's going on, what's really happening. Yes. But that's hard to do. It, you can't start from scratch. You have to work at it. It's practice. It's a muscle. It, so it is. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, training as an athlete and willpower is your go-to. For me, 10 years. I, so I, I, you know, was an athlete in high school, a little bit in college as well. And I approached meditation training the same way. I'm just going to brute force through it. And for 10 years, I would go on these week-long meditation retreats up in, in Massachusetts in the winter when it's cold, and I would sweat through T-shirts, working so hard. Do you go to Kripalu? I went to the Insight Meditation Society. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I realized, wait a minute, this isn't how our brains work. And they actually talk about this in the ancient teachings. It's basically about learning to bring awareness and curiosity together. When you're curious about something, it's like reading a good book. You don't have to force yourself to read. It's just, you're just interested. You want to read. Uh, how many books have you like read way too, you know, like, oh my God, it's three in the morning. <laughs> I need to go to bed because we're so interested. So the concentration comes naturally when we know how to work it. 
And so here, what I had been missing for 10 years was that I was trying to force myself to pay attention. It was my breath, right? Boring is all get out. My brain's like, dude, I know how to breathe. Let's do something else. Let's think. My brain loved to think. I was addicted to thinking, wrote a whole chapter on that. <laughs> so it's about seeing when we're trying to force ourselves to concentrate on something and instead saying, well, can I tap into this reward value? Curiosity itself is rewarding. Can I get curious about my breath? What does that physical sensation feel like? Can I get curious about anxiety? What does anxiety feel like as compared to pushing it off or taking a pill or trying to make it go away? So you mentioned addiction to thinking. Mm -hmm. And what I think about is being addicted to good things. And look, we're in the world of, of well-being and some people are addicted to being healthy. When is that problematic? <laughs> so it's just like thinking. Is, uh, I, I think thinking is helpful <laughs> as a physician, as a scientist. I, you know, I think thinking is really helpful. But when I get so caught up in thinking, and, and you know, that's where it spins out of control. The same is true for being healthy. I see this with um, people who are trying to substitute exercise for mm -hmm. alcohol or other hardcore addictions what do they do they get injured because they over exercise uh, and in fact when i look back in college myself i think i was addicted to exercise because i would plan my day around exercise if i hadn't exercised people would kind of stay away from me because i'd be kind of grumpy right. all these things so you can see we get withdrawal we we perseverate all these all these addiction um, symptoms are there even with exercise. We can be addicted to anything. We can be addicted to eating good food. Well, th that's the big one. I see that all the time in our world. People mm -hmm. self-identify. Um, you know, a lot of people come to wellness. You know, something was wrong. They weren't feeling well. Uh, maybe something was just off or something was more serious and they embrace a specific way of eating. You yeah. know, whether it was keto, paleo, vegan, they feel better, boom, this is the this is this is who I am. I self-identify. It's religion. They're not open to changing, and and it, this is perfect. So let, we can separate those two things. So I, uh, for example, I started eating a whole food, plant-based diet, like cut out dairy, just about six eight months ago, and I found and I've been vegetarian for a long time. I didn't think that my diet would get much better because it was feeling pretty good. I realized, wow, this is for me. It was great. So there's that reward value that comes with eating a plant-based diet. And I found that that's sustainable for me because I don't have to think, oh, should I do this? It's just like it's rewarding. The problem comes despite adverse consequences. When I start identifying and becoming this, you know, like a vegan Nazi or something like that, <laughs> you know, where it's like you should be vegan, you should be vegan, you should be vegan. You know, it's like forget about it. This worked for me. I found the reward value of eating a whole food plant-based diet where the suffering comes in is when I try to force that upon other people, that identification. That's the problem, and that's optional. So why does everyone, why do so many people do that? Where, is it because they feel so good or that they want to you know, spread the word, spread the love, or does it become, uh, is anyone else embracing another diet? Is, are they threatening? to who they are as a person. Like what's going on there? It happens so often. I think it's all of the above that you said. So let's start with a threatening piece where we feel like it's a personal attack on us if somebody else isn't doing what we're doing, right? So if we're taking something personally, say a diet, a particular diet, and we try to you know, say, oh, you should do this. And somebody says, well, no, thanks. We, feel, we can feel personally affronted. Like we're taking that personally. 
that's optional. We can realize, oh, I don't have to do that, right? They can do what they want. It's their life. I actually suffer when I try to voice my views on others. We see this politically as well. Well, (laughs) (laughs) we don't have to do that. The the parallels between politics and social media and wellness today are scary. It's because humans are human, right? It's the same thing. It's just the subject matter. So the beautiful thing about this is it doesn't matter if we're Republicans or Democrats. What matters is that we're becoming less connected, which is so sad. We as a country are being torn apart just because we're so attached to views and you know people are playing on that with social media trying to get us more and more into well, that camp well with regards to politics or or nutrition you don't get a lot of likes or shares or comments if you're if you're sort of balanced in the middle if you say you know eat, my favorite line on on nutrition of all time is michael pollan eat food not too much mostly plants like pretty hard to argue with yeah uh if I were to share that in social media, you know, maybe it gets some likes, but I think just in the world we live in today, and it's very true with politics, to be in the middle and be balanced is just, there is no reward system for that. So we've lost- We reward polarization. We do, because that's the dopamine system. So it goes back to, we've kind of lost sight of what life is about. We're, we're clicking levers like rats. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get likes as compared to trying to live a good life and get along with each other. What's more important? And I think the good news is as we start, as we wake up and we're like, wait a minute, I've been scrolling through social media to try to get or try to think up the, the most outrageous because outrage is what gets likes. It's not something in the middle. Trying to do all this stuff and it's driving, you know, it's making me very miserable wait a minute, what is life about? It's about not being miserable. And what helps us not be miserable is being connected with others. So if we start to see the reward of being connected with others, we can then step out of these old habit loops and into ones that are more rewarding. So today when I think so many people are you know, searching for happiness, how do you define a good life? What does that mean to you personally? And what does science say too? Well, I don't think the, there's a clear scientific answer to what is a good life, but we can certainly look well, at things that cause suffering. Happiness. Yeah. Uh, there's an, an increasing amount of research looking at this very old term called eudaimonia. Have you heard that? I have not. Because it's very old. It's older than me. <laughs> Way like, older than me. Like the ancient Greeks. Okay. Where they basically talked about, and I'm terrible at definitions, but instead of the excited type of happiness, they're talking about an even type of happiness, a balance. Joy that comes with contentment, being content. So contentment isn't dopaminergic, right? Excitement is. There was this this Burmese meditation teacher that put it beautifully. He said something like, um, we we mistake excitement of the mind for happiness. And we don't realize the greater joy that comes from like contentness and, and things like that. So if we look at excitement versus joy, well, for yourself, which one feels more sustainable? Joy. Which one feels better? For me now, joy. Yeah. And I think that changed once we had children. There's the bigger, better offer. Yeah. It's about pointing it out to people, pointing out how they're getting caught up in the excitement habit loop cycle, which is what social media is all about, and also seeing that there is a bigger, better offer. Many people don't know that there's a bigger, better offer, that there's joy out there. Where does joy come from? Connection as compared to disconnection, right? Where does it come from? Curiosity. Where does it come from? Kindness. So there are very simple things 
that actually go back into this definition of eudaimonia that's probably not dopaminergic. What role does gratitude play? Huge role. Does that feel better than excitement? Yeah, sure. I'm a huge fan of gratitude. Yeah, it feels huge great. Fan. We have a we have a mural in our office. Gratitude, two T's. And does, it's an attitude for Peter Tunney. <laughs> and does gratitude feel connecting or disconnecting? Connecting. Yeah. So it's it's all gratitude fits in there perfectly. So we have a smart audience. You guys are smart who are listening. So much of what you're saying is resonating with me and I think resonating with our audience. But I think I'll close with the question is, so what can we start to do today to start to strengthen these muscles, if you will, to deal with anxiety, to deal with the ups and downs of, of life? What can we do? What can we, what can we start right now with? We can start with something that we all have, which is awareness. And we can become aware of two to three things. One is become aware of your old habits and see what you're getting from them so that you can accurately gauge that reward value. And number two is see what, what mental and physical behaviors are actually bringing more joy, bringing that bigger, better offer, such as curiosity, such as kindness, such as connection. Those are the two things. I would say awareness of old habits, knowing how our minds work, being able to then bring awareness in and finding those bigger, better offers, those BBOs. I love it. Judd, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. 